0: This message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. Well, it's uh, good to be back from, it actually was sunny Canada. Uh, I was in Ottawa last week. Uh, with their advance conference, and I got to escort Tony Ling over there and had a great time with the church in Ottawa. Uh, they had a, a weekend where they got the church that they're working with in Cape Breton, which is in Nova Scotia. They were over, the guys from Peterborough. You all remember Matt and Celia Clark, who were with us for some time. The, the church there was with them as well, and another group that are meeting up in the Quebec region. Uh, all gathered together to... Um, to worship God together, to hear the word of the Lord together, and to advance the purposes of God. And it's such a blessing to travel seven hours west, land in a totally different country, and feel completely at home because you're with God's people, because you're with the family of God. And, uh, and that's what I'd like to talk about this morning, about the church being the family of God. And, uh, you know, David said earlier about welcoming one another and greeting one another, If you have a look around, this this group of people here this morning, have a little look, have another little glimpse, okay? This is your church family. This is the family of God, and uh, we're so blessed to be joined together. Now, when we, we talk about the church sometimes, we talk about it universally and on a big scale, and we talk about being children of God, being all those who believe and put their faith and trust in God, and of course, that's true. We're part of a worldwide family, a worldwide group of believers, brothers and sisters, children of God in Christ, but also we're part of a local family where that's expressed and worked out in a real and practical and and wonderful way, sometimes challenging way as well. But that's what family is all about. Does anybody here have a family where there are no challenges? Who chuckles? (laughs) I guess that means that uh, we all have challenges in our families, but that makes them no less our family, does it? We don't always see eye to eye with with our family, but that doesn't make us less of a family. In fact, the fact that we stay together and work through those challenges defines us as a family because there's something bigger than you and I individually because we're together corporately. And so over the past uh, few weeks, David has done a great job, hasn't he, talking about marriage and the importance of our understanding things and where they're based in the beginning. And uh, and when we when we look at the beginning, we see kind of two really key pictures. One is of a I feel like a son and his bride, and the other is of a father and his family. And when we've looked at marriage, we've looked at how Adam and Eve were joined together, they were different, they were distinct, and yet they were of the same essence, the same kind, and as they came together in marriage, it was representative of more than just God's desire that we find love and that we find us a companion and someone to share our lives with, and we complete one another. But it's this great picture, this cosmic picture of Christ and his church, the groom and the bride. And there's also a wonderful picture of a father and his family, that God created us in his image so that we would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I think... It's very unusual to find anybody that doesn't value and put a value and worth on family. I know that I'm proud to be part of the family that I'm a part of, naturally. I'm proud to be a Jones, or as we say in Wales, Jones. But you end up repeating yourself all the time, spelling out the most simple surname on planet Earth, so I have to say Jones, and a bit of me dies every time. but. But I'm proud of my heritage. I'm proud of my, um, you know, we had Remembrance Day, didn't we, earlier this month, and uh, my cousin put a picture of my grandfather up on on Facebook, and and I thought, you know, that's part of my identity, that's part of my heritage, I'm proud that he's my granddad, and all my, my sisters and my cousins are all pinging messages saying that they too are proud to be, there's something special about it, it defines where we've come from, it shapes what we do now, and it defines what we do in the future as well, There's something about family that grounds us and anchors us, that makes us proud to be part of something. That old saying, blood is thicker than water. But the wonderful thing is, the blood of Christ has brought us into the family, and that blood is far more precious than any human blood, and it defines our relationships far more than even natural relationships. As wonderful and important, as significant as they are, we've been bought by the blood of Christ and brought into the family of Christ together. We're going to welcome in some new members later, and um, we 're really looking forward to see that this family is growing all the time that 's god 's heart for a growing family. But before we start talking about fa- um, the church as a family firstly we 've got to start by looking at God as a father you can 't look at a family without looking at the Father when it comes to the church family and um, we, uh, we were talking a little while ago at a conference in Leicester, and Roger Aubrey shared, and he said, You know, sometimes we try and view God as a father through the eyes of either being a father or the father that we've had. We must never do that. Never try and picture God as, as good as your father might have been. Never try and see God through that perspective. See God as father as he reveals himself in his word. He's the ultimate father, he's not a shadow of my father. He is the father, the heavenly father. And the word is the only place where I can come to to see what sort of father he is. And from that, I learned to, 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 to sort of think about how I, the, the sort of father that I can be to my children as well. And so when we see in the Old Testament, I was interested to find out, you know, God is only referred to as father specifically 15 times in the Old Testament. Just 15 times is he directly referred to as a father. Nine of those occasions, it's linked directly to Israel being like his children, and on six other occasions, it applies to individuals, or prophetically to us, or prophetically to Jesus. David, Solomon, us, Jesus. Then when we meet the Gospels and we read what Jesus says, he blows the lid off it. It's like what was limited in the old is exponentially (laughs) preached in the new. You know what? In, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus talks about his father, refers to God as his father 65 times, and in John alone, over 100 times. What a shift, what a change. 15 times in the old, all of those books, 39 books, and we get to the first four, and God is referred to his father over 170 times. God wants us to grasp something of what happens in the new covenant. The relationship that was always there, but was subdued and hidden and never quite fully revealed, that when Jesus comes and brings in the new covenant, it comes in technicolor and surround sound. God is our Father. We are His children. We are the family of God. The first mention of God as a Father is in Deuteronomy. If you turn to Deuteronomy 32, please. We've talked about how... Um, and David did a great job of this, of linking everything back to the beginning and how important the beginnings are and, and particularly how the, everything finds its root in Genesis. From there, we see uh, some of the most foundational key truths that then become unpacked in the rest of the word, but they're there, found in Genesis. And, and in Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, the very first time that God is mentioned as a father. So it's significant, this first mention. And Moses is singing his song, and he says this halfway through the, the verse six. Isn't he your father who created you? Has he not made you and established you? You know, it's interesting. Moses ties in the fatherhood of God with God being our creator. Takes us right back to the beginning. He's our Father. He's our Creator. In uh, Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul is praying this incredible prayer, and we'll read these verses later on, but he says this, when I think of this, he's he's saying, when I think of the great plan that God has that was mysterious that's been revealed to me, that God is going to bring and unleash all of his treasures and riches as our inheritance as his children so that he can reveal his wisdom to the heavenly realms, when I think of this incredible plan, he says, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. God is our Father. He's our creator. You know, there's great value. is put on, um, on things when we've made them with our own hands, isn't it? You've, you've, when you've invested time and your creativity and your passion, and and, and all the things that you're wanting to build, when you've done it yourself and you've created something, it's got its own value and worth. If we're not created, we are worthless. But the truth is, God has created us. He's our Father. And when we read Genesis 1, if you go back to the beginning, you know, Genesis 1 is a fantastic poem, a description of creation itself. It's 31 verses that describes The the creation of the universe, of men and women, of everything, in all of creation is described in just 31 verses. So preachers really don't have an excuse for going on if God can condense creation into 31 verses of one chapter. But what we learn about God as our creator and our father is seen here in Genesis 1, because although there are 31 verses, God is mentioned or referred to 35 times. It's more, much less about creation and much more about the creator. And what do we see of God in creation? What do we see of what our Father is like? Well, firstly this, he's all-powerful. He's transcendent. He's not tied in with the universe. He surrounds the universe. He, he holds the universe in the palm of his hands. Let's not get uh, mixed up with God and the universe being one. God is distinct from his creation. He's transcendent. He's all-powerful. But I love this as well. He's a God of order. On day one, day two, day three, he forms things. He forms the light and the dark. He forms the sky and the sea. He forms the land and the waters. He's a God of order because then he fills what he formed. On day four, he fills the light and the dark with the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, he fills the sky and the sea with the birds and the fish. And on day six, he fills the land with animals and puts man and woman in the garden to, to cultivate it. He's a God of order. That's what our Father is like. This is good news. Our Father is good. Amen. Whatever he made, in his humble yet surprisingly accurate opinion, he stepped back and said, It's good. Day one light and dark it's good they too the waters and the sky and the sea it's good every day it's good the only time when he says it's not good was that man was alone and then when man eve is taken from adam's side and placed alongside him and god is finished he said it's very good god is a good god he's transcendent he's all powerful he's a god of order he's good he's awesome he's mighty and you guess what He's made us in his image. That means that there's an inherent power that we have as a result of being made in his image. We've been encouraged to remember that this morning. It means that in everything, God wants us to be good, to reveal his goodness and his glory. And if you turn to Genesis 1:27, in fact, verse 26, God said, let us Not let me, let us, the plurality, the trinity, the Godhead, let us, the community, the family of God almost, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. We see this incredible picture of God creating a family that's just like him. In the Godhead, Father and Son are there with the Holy Spirit, and they say, let's make something incredible. Let's make something. Let's make someone like us. To rule in the earth. To multiply and be fruitful and be blessed. And to bring our glory into the earth. And to fill the earth with our glory. That's us. That's the church. That's the people of God. That's God's family. That's you and I this morning. Like our Father, this is who we are. Like Father, like Son. God created us to be productive. You know what? Within us, He's put everything that we need to grow to grow individually, but to grow corporately. That's representative of God himself. That we represent something of in our families of order and of submission, of same essence, same kind, same value, same worth, but a different and distinct roles that we find. And when we find our role and our our place in that, there's great release and freedom and authority for us. That this is seen in the earth, that we reveal the glory of God in the earth, And you know what? It's a fantastic picture. And then what happens? Sin comes in and disrupts things. And Adam and Eve, there's disruption between them. There's disruption between them and creation. And then worst of all, in some ways, there's a breakdown completely of the family as brother kills brother. And if you turn to to Genesis 4, we read this tragic story of, of Cain and Abel. The enemy is doing all that he can to destroy family. He's doing all that he can to destroy family. He's trying to blur roles. He's trying to change and mix up the rules. He's trying to um, cause there to be a lack in family life. He will do all that he can to attack the family because the family of God represents God's heart. as the father of, of a wonderful family. It, it, it directly challenges his fatherhood. And we see this at work here when when Cain kills Abel. Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel. Abel is offering sacrifices to God and he's doing it in a righteous way, in a worshipful way. And Cain is, is doing things and he's withholding things, he's being unrighteous. And he begins to see the favor of God on his brother. And rather than putting himself right with God, he becomes jealous of his brother and decides that he's going to kill him. You know, we must never become jealous of one another when we see the favor of God. And this question is a question that echoes throughout time and is a question that God is asking us today, which is this. When Cain has killed Abel, God says, he's not just conducting some sort of post-murder interview. He's asking a question that's fundamental to all of us, that we should all know the answer to, which is this. Where is your brother? Where is your brother? This is more than CSI, Eden, Okay, This isn't God putting Cain in some sort of interview room and and, and sort of asking him where his body is because he doesn't know. What he's saying is this, that the relationship that you've had for your brother is completely broken down. That in your own heart, you're not caring for your brother in the way that you're meant to. Where is your brother? And then Cain says this, am I my brother's keeper? And inside God is saying, yes, you are. You know, God's heart for us is to understand that he's brought us into his family and he wants us to keep one another, to care for one another, to know where one another are at. That it's not always, you know, sometimes we, we think it's, it's the job of the elder or it's the job of the deacon or the job of the life leader to know where everybody's at. Actually, it's the job of all of us to know where one another are at. And God asks, Cain, where is your brother? Because God's heart is always that we're looking out for one another that there's that sense of togetherness and that sense of family. And then throughout the word, word, we see God seeking to restore this relationship that was broken, the family that was broken, the marriage that was broken. And and when we come into, if you turn to Psalm 68, we just hear a hint. This is one of those 15 father references that I talked about at the beginning. And it says this of God, be encouraged with this this morning. He is the father to the fatherless. Defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets prisoners free and gives them joy. God sets us in families. You know, we are a family of families. We, we are constantly aware that there are, are times in, in, in the church where we talk about families, but not everybody here is here with their family. There are some people here that are are single, that are widowed or widowers. There are some people here that are younger or older, and you're not here with your family. But this is your family. This is where God has added you. This is where God has put us together. So that whether you're a family or whether you're up by yourself, we are a family together. And God wants us to outwork that together. God wants us to feel joined and to understand that we're part of this family. Whether we're here with our natural family or not, this is our family. Why? Because we've been adopted. We turn to Romans 8. These verses, you know, in, in, he, in Hebrew times, times of the Old Testament, if you were adopted, you were brought into everything. You were brought into the fullness of being as if you were a naturally born son or daughter into that family. Everything that the natural heir was to receive, you would receive also. There was no second division. There was no lower level. You were brought into the fullness of the riches of the family and the inheritance. You were a true heir. And this is the adoption that God has called us into. Romans 8 verse 15 says, You've not received the spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his children. And now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we're his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. You know, there's there's a great privilege, isn't there, of being brought into the family of God. There's a great privilege to become an heir, to think these riches are going to be mine. The things that Christ had the power of, the the way that Christ could move, the authority that he had, those riches that he's, his righteousness becomes my righteousness. His power becomes my power. His glory becomes my glory. His purity becomes my purity. But also with that great privilege comes what? Responsibility. You know, the older we get, the more responsible God holds us for our behavior and our actions and the way we conduct ourselves. As a parent, you don't sort of chastise your child in the same way when they're young and they understand less to when they're older and they've grown more mature and understanding. And I, I'd said this story before, but I remember one of my friends from school was driving me down to, down to town and I leaned out the window and i was just going, Wahey! I don't know what happened to me, I had too many Haribos or something. But unbeknown to me, my mother was in the bus going in the opposite direction. <laughs> and when I got home, Jill was not impressed. You know, she's like, how old are you? You're acting like a, a, an infant. I said, sorry, ma'am, I was 27, you know, so. <laughs> but with these great privileges come great responsibilities shared the story in the past of when I crashed my dad's car because I was driving in it with my legs crossed. And my father was a driving instructor and he'd let me take his driving school car out. And we sat in a petrol station and was waiting for my friend to go and buy some fruit pastels and I thought, I'll just see what it's like to drive with my legs crossed. <laughs> Stefan Ruwig shaking his head at the moment. <laughs> you don't teach that one, do you, Stefan? No. Put my right foot down on the clutch and put it into first. The engine was running, the handbrake was off. Put my... And then I thought, actually, no, this isn't a particularly good idea. So I put my left foot down where it would normally be on the clutch to take it out of gear, which was now hovering over the accelerator. And the engine revved really loudly as I pushed my foot down and automatically lifted my right foot up, which would normally be on the accelerator, but was on the clutch and went into the car in front. I'd enjoyed the privilege, but I wasn't acting up. I wasn't being responsible with the privilege that my father had given me. I basically drove his office into somebody else's car. (laughs) That was, his, that was his income. That was where he made his money. And I went home and lied about it as well, which makes it even worse. Don't judge me. All right, judge me a bit. Said that my foot had slipped off the clutch because it had some diesel on it, and, and they bought it. And then about three years later, I owned up over Christmas dinner. You know, God wants us to understand that we have these privileges, but we also have responsibilities. And that we share in his glory, but we also share in his suffering. I read that sometimes and I think, oh, I'd rather just share in the glory if that's okay with you. But you know what? When When we become heirs, when we become adopted by God, we are fully associated with the Father. We are fully associated with Christ. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I'm the master of the household. And you're my household and they're calling me the prince of demons. They'll be saying a lot worse things about you saying, because you're associated with me, you will be persecuted. Jesus says in other places, "Um, in this world you'll have trouble, but be of good heart. I've overcome the world. And so although there's suffering, we read that, but we actually know as well that part of the privilege is that we'll overcome those things. Part of the responsibility is to overcome those things together. Galatians 4, verse 6 to 7 says, because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. That's us this morning. Heirs of God. Where we can come to God and say, Abba, Father. You know, I've, I've heard this, um, this translated as Daddy God. But it's not that. It's, it's, there's more reverence to it than that. It means dear Father. There's an intimacy, but there's a respect and an honor as well. That in it all, that we can come to God and we can enter into his presence boldly and say, Dear Father, and know that he welcomes us warmly because we're his children. He's adopted us. Something incredibly special about that, isn't there? Lord, I pray by your spirit right now. It's by your spirit, Lord, that you reveal to us, you remind us, you reaffirm to us that we are your children, that we're your sons. That, Lord, sonship is is not dependent on gender. It's about you bringing us into the fullness of relationship with you. And, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've done that. We thank you that you've paid a price. And, Lord, I pray for each heart here, each one of us. Holy Spirit, cause us to understand afresh who we really are. Sons of the living God. Who can enter boldly into the presence of God? Lord, we thank you for the work that you've done. Lord, let us be more reassured than ever of who we are in you, our identity in you, Lord. Amen. You know, there's something of that adoption and, and being brought into this household. And our view of family in Western society is far too narrow because it, we think about the nuclear family more than anything else. Mum, dad, and 2.2 children, however that works. But you know what? When God talks about family and household in the time that it was written, it meant much, much more than that. It was much fuller than that. And I love the fact that I'm part of a church family where there's a variety of ages and and stages of life and and that's how it should be. That we're the household of God, the household of faith. Not just two generations, but many generations all brought together under the same father, all brought together by the same principle, the same process of putting our faith and trust in Jesus, all equal in God's sight together. Household of faith, as Galatians six ten, it says, "Do good to everyone, especially, but especially, to the household of faith." Talked about and described as God's household. In fact, if I just turn to that, Ephesians two verse nineteen. Ephesians two verse nineteen, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, "So you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners." You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone. You know, our understanding of of being part of the household of God, where we are all completely united, all completely together and God is our father and we've all come in by the same means is so important for us to grasp and understand and there's there's five things I just want to to cover about our understanding of family firstly it's identity secondly security thirdly maturity fourthly equality and lastly unity I'm going to talk about these things firstly identity you know we've talked a lot about covenant and um And one of the big aspects of covenant is that in in, in the covenant relationship, God is establishing himself as a father and us as his children. We've covered that and talked about that. And therefore, our identity is as, is as, as, as sons of God. So in 1 John 3, verse 1, John writes and he says, see how very much our father loves us for he calls us children and that is what we are. That is what we are. If we don't have our identity and understanding that we're children of God, we lose everything. Because God is our Father and we are his children, that's where we find our identity. And out of that, we act as sons. We act as children because that's our identity. So therefore, I obey the Father. I live in the way that pleases the Father. Far too many of us try and obey and please the Father to grasp some identity as a child. We get it the wrong way around. You know, sometimes we 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 try and live right so that we can come into and be seen by God to be righteous. It's the wrong way around. When we're born again, and we put our faith in Jesus. Not only does he forgive our sins, not only does he pay our debts and, and take us to zero, he then puts on us his righteousness. He puts us in massive credit that we could never attain or earn ourselves. But far too often we act as if we're on naught and we're trying to earn our righteousness to become suitable in God's eyes, we're already there. That's our identity. Sometimes we try and say, well, if I obey God, then maybe he'll love me more or he'll see me more as his child and his son and he'll trust me. No, that's our identity. And therefore, we obey as a result. And you know what? It's in that identity that we have, that's where we have authority. Because when I'm a son and I realize that I have the father and all of his power and all of his riches behind me as his son, then boy, do I have authority. I've submitted to his fatherhood and I've come under his rule and come into his family. I'm a son, that's my identity, that gives me great authority. That's how Jesus functioned. And from that authority comes great power. And God's heart is for us to understand who we now are in Christ our identity of sons. We live in an age where there is a crisis of identity. People not knowing who they are, what they are. Well, you know what? They'll never know who they are until they submit to God. They come in to God's family. They realize that he's their father, that they're their child. And from that place, that's where my identity lies. It's not in my my finances. It's not in my My sexuality, it's not in my status, it's not in my background, it's not in my my, the colour of my skin, none of that stuff. My identity is in him as a child of God. And from that place God builds into me all the things that he wants to build into his children. That's where it starts. My identity as a child of God. See how much our Father loves us, He calls us His children, that is what we are. You know what? You're a son, not a slave. You're a saint, not a sinner. It's important that we talk rightly about who we are, that we speak of who we really are, the identity that we have in Christ, children of God. And because of that identity, then we have a security. He says, see how much our Father loves us. When you're loved, you're secure. When you're loved by God, you can't be more secure than that. Jesus was completely secure because he knew that his father loved him. We can know complete security by understanding that. 1 John 3, 19 to 21 says, we love each other because he first loved us. When I'm loved, I'm secure. My identity is as a child. My security comes from the fact that I'm loved. And then this happens. I have a maturity. I'm able to love others. Sometimes we try and love others without really beginning to take hold of how loved we are by God. John says true love comes from God. Sometimes we try and love people by, by, by working it up in ourselves when actually God wants us to know that we're loved, to ask him to know that love so that we can bring his love and pour his love out onto the people around us because love comes from God. 1 John three nineteen says we love each other because he loved us first. If someone says I love God but hates his brother that person is a liar the one who loves God must also love his brother that's a sign of a maturity isn't it talked about this when we talked about covenant love that i can love you is a sign of maturity that i choose to love you as a brother and a sister that you choose to love me as a brother and a sister because we ourselves know that we're loved we know our identity as a child we have our security because we're loved we come to maturity and are able to love one another, and we have a complete equality. I was trying to think of a context in modern, modern times where when you, when you go somewhere that everybody is in completely the same situation as you. Initially, I thought about going to the cinema, but then I thought, actually, now they've got the VIP seats. Con seats, as I like to call them, but C-O-N seats. Or if you go to a football match or a rugby match, but then you know, there are some seats that are better than others and you can pay more to get in there. And, or even on the train, there's first class. And, there's, and I thought, you know what? The one place where it's a complete leveler is the Tube in London. <laughs> one ticket and you're on the same train as everybody else. You go up and down the same stairs, the same escalator. You're in completely the same boat cooped up in that same thing with people far too close to you as you sort of rock back and forth. But you know what? When we're brought into the goodness of God, think about the anti-tube, okay? (laughs) Where rather than everything is down and shut and horrible and bleak, we have brought into the glory of God. But there's an equality. We're all in exactly the same boat. There are no first and second class Christians. We don't, as elders, we don't view different people in the church in different ways, I want to make that statement. I have heard the phrase in crowd, okay? That that some people think that as elders we have an in crowd. We do not have an in crowd. There is complete equality in how we view the church. We love each person. We want each person to come into all that God has for them. There may be some times and situations where we're involved in some lives more than others. That doesn't mean they're more important to us. That's just where we're investing our time and our efforts and our energy at that point. But we're available and accessible to everybody. And if anybody ever asked to meet with us as part of the church, we would make every effort to be with them as much as anybody else. Because we have a love for the whole church and there's a total equality as brothers and sisters. Equality. And as a result, unity. The word for household is oikos. And there's a great word that is then described that talks about this unity, and it's this, Philadelphia. It means brotherly love, both of which are dairy products. Oikos is a yogurt, and Philadelphia is a cream cheese. I don't know what's going on there. But if you turn to Romans 12, verse 10. I realize this is probably the most scattergun I've preached for a long time, and I apologize about that, but I want to at least impart something of the heart of what it is to be part of the family of God and how we view the church and how we to view one another. Romans 12 verse 10, or verse 9, sorry. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tight to what is good. Love one another Now in the New Living Translation, it says genuine affection, but the real phrase there is love one another with brotherly love. It's a precious love, isn't it? The love that you have for your sibling. When you've grown up together, when you've experienced a lot of life together, when you know there's that, that you have the same parents, the same father, and this sense of really loving one another and of being together. And then in 2 Peter 1, 7, it talks again about brotherly love defining us. And I thought, you know, it's, it's a fantastic thing to, to say that we have a, a brotherly love for one another. But then I read the story of, um, of Acts nine seventeen when Ananias is called to visit Saul after he's had the encounter. And this is what he, how he describes Saul. He says, brother. And I thought, wow. Paul has been persecuting the church for years. He's been making sure that Ananias' friends and loved ones have been Scared, running for their lives, maybe even slaughtered and killed. And yet, as soon as Paul comes to Christ, the very first word that Ananias uses to describe Saul is brother. I oh, thought, wow, what an incredible thought. That immediate change. As soon as you move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you're a brother in Christ. I'm a brother in Christ to you. No, in the life of the church, being realistic, not everybody here is going to be your best friend. They're not going to be the person that you're going to spend most time with. Of course, there are relationships that are close to others. Jesus had that with his disciples. He had the relationship with John, then he had the relationship with the three, and then the 12, and then the 70. But you know what? He was as much a brother to all of them as he was to John. Friendships are good, but never to prevent the friendships of others, never to become a clique never to become separate, that we see one another in the same way with the same equality and the same love. That's God's heart for us. And that as soon as someone is added to us, regardless of their background, when they're born again, they're a brother. Amen. They're part of the family. The family has just grown. Now, I just want to encourage us to maintain the sense of family that we have here. For a long time, we talked about being a fantastic family and I believe that we are a great family. Even as we grow, we need to if, if I fight to retain that sense of family more than more. And there's just three things I want to encourage us with in closing of how we can help maintain it, the essence and sense of family. Firstly, it says, there's an old saying, those who pray together, stay together. It's so important that we pray together. It's interesting that when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he doesn't tell them to say, My father. Or even just Father, he says, our Father. Yeah. You know, there's something that God does in the corporate prayer that, is, that goes beyond what happens when it's just me praying. And the importance of us gathering to pray together is an expression of us being a family with the same Heavenly Father. To pray with one another and to pray for one another is a way that we will maintain a sense of family. Even as we grow I don't know about you, but as I pray for other people in the church, a love for them grows in me. A care for them grows in me. That we pray with and for one another. Those who pray together, stay together. Make praying together a priority. I think we've lost that. That's, we've lost some of that essence of, of, of the importance of gathering together to pray. If you're praying in, in, in uh, home groups or life groups, don't skip that one because you're uncomfortable praying in a group. Be there. If nothing else than to say amen to the prayers that someone else prays because there's power in agreement. When we get to gather together corporately, I know it can be scary praying in a large group. Be there. Expect to be there to add your amens to the prayers because your amen is important in bringing agreement and a sense of togetherness. Pray together to stay together. Secondly, meet together and eat together. You know, I love to spend time with my children, and I love to see my children spending time with one another. I believe it does God's heart good when we spend time together as his children. It just pleases him. It blesses him. In the writer of the Hebrews says, don't give up the habit of meeting together, to make Sundays our priority, to make being part of a small group a priority. And in some, some cases, that priority is slipped. And I'm here this morning to remind us of the importance and the need for being together corporately, but also in homes. And to say this, if, you, if you're disengaged from a group for whatever reason, my job is not to go around um, hunting people down that aren't getting to life group. Because that would be a full-time job for me at the moment. <laughs> no, that's not my job. That's not, that's, and, and it's not the, the job of the life group leader to sort of try and pin you down each week. There's a, there's, a, there's a need for us to recognize the importance of gathering together. And if where you are at the moment isn't working for whatever reason, then come and speak to, to me or David or Chris and we will help you. But we really value the importance of gathering together in homes and corporately to making that a priority, to prioritize it. And that when we gather together that we expect to contribute. And that when we don't, aren't able to be there that we're quick to explain why we're not, to let people know that are planning things for us to value times in our homes, to value times eating together. I just want to say this, don't get over the top about hospitality. It's more about sharing grace with heirs than sharing heirs and graces. You know, sometimes we try and fix everything up so it's perfect before we invite people around, and then we end up not inviting people around. When we're part of a family we look after one another, we care for another, we're not trying to fix everything up, so it's, you know, get the bunting out, make sure everything's tidied away, (laughs) yeah, but actually that we just spend time together, and there's there's an informality and and a relaxed thing about it, we're still hospitable, we're still caring, but sometimes we make it such a big deal to invite people around that we don't get around to doing it, and I'd much rather that we're just in one another's homes, in one another's lives. Even if it's just for a coffee or some cake and inviting somebody around, just to be, spend some time together for an hour is really important. Meet together, eat together, pray together, stay together, grow together, and sow together. God wants us to grow. God wants you to see this as His household and your household, and therefore to invest yourself into it, to regard the people here as your brothers and sisters, and in doing that, that you keep right relationships. That there's a commitment to something that's bigger than ourselves. That we grow then in that together, and then we move out and go together to see the family grow even more. God's heart has always been a family on a mission, a family that reaches the world, a family where His glory rests. As Adam said, said that's a light in the darkness that attracts people to it. That's God, God's heart for us. And I just want to I wanted to spend this morning to remind us of the importance and understanding. God is our Father. We are his children. We're loved and we're to love. God wants us to invest in our relationships together to know that there's an equality and a unity that he wants us to celebrate and enjoy. Can we stand together? Just where you are, just begin to, in your own words, just begin to thank God that he's your father that he's called you, that he's adopted you, that he's chosen you, that you're his child, that you're his son. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Father. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you're a loving Father. Thank you, Lord, that your heart is towards us here in this place this afternoon. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us together as your family for purpose, Lord. That you've called us and created us to grow and to multiply. Lord, not just naturally, but spiritually, Lord. Lord, I want to thank you for the many lives, the many families and individuals that are represented here this morning. And Lord, my prayer is, Holy Spirit, bless each person here this morning. Bless each family unit here this morning but Lord, above all, let there be a greater sense of togetherness than ever before. Help, Lord, to seal in our hearts that understanding that we're part of your household, that you desire, Lord, for us to outwork our relationships as brothers and sisters. Lord, let a greater and deeper love and care for one another, that Philadelphia, that brotherly love, Lord, let that grow and increase in us, I pray, even this afternoon as we gather together for fellowship, Lord. And Lord, our prayer is let us be a great blessing to the world around us. Lord, let other families, let other individuals find their place here in this family, Lord. Let us continue to be open and welcoming, Lord, to those that you bring to us so that this family grows and grows and grows and represents you wonderfully, Lord, brings glory to your name in all the earth. Lord, we thank you for your love and your care. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thanks so much for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, please visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk